Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Matthew chapter 14. Uh, today we are hopping back into a long-running series that our church has been in through the book of Matthew in the Bible. If you're new around City Church, we actually started this series back in August of 2020. Do you guys remember August of 2020? That feel, yeah, me neither. That feels like so long ago. Like so much has happened since August 2020. August of 2020, I think, was when we were all like, ah, oh, COVID will be over any day now. You know, like just probably tomorrow we'll find out that we got it under control. Uh, so anyway, we've grown up so much since then, haven't we? Um, but August of 2020 is when we started the book of Matthew together as a church family. And as a refresher, just in case you weren't here for that, uh, the book of Matthew is one of four early biographies that we have in our Bibles about the life of Jesus. Uh, and if you had to pick one sort of mega theme of the book of Matthew, it would probably be what Jesus calls the kingdom of heaven, or sometimes that's called the kingdom of God. Those terms are interchangeable in the Bible. That one idea, the kingdom of God, comes up over and over again throughout this entire book of Matthew. And the kingdom is Jesus' way of talking about the, the places and the environments and the circumstances and the spaces in our world where, in his language, God's will is done. That's the kingdom of God. It's where what God wants to happen happens, where, where life looks like what he says life should look like. That's the kingdom of heaven. And during most of the book of Matthew, Jesus is just trying to unpack and explain and demonstrate what that kingdom looks like and feels like for his audience and then also by association for us today. And today we enter a new section of Matthew. So over the next two months or so together as a church family, we will be looking at chapters 14 through 17 of this book. And in those chapters, we see people start to understand the kingdom for the first time. In fact, that's our subtitle for this section of Matthew, Understanding the Kingdom. You see, so far in the book of Matthew, there's been mostly a lot of confusion about the kingdom. The, the disciples are confused, the Pharisees are confused, the religious leaders are confused, everybody is confused when Jesus speaks in parables, like literally everybody is confused in those moments. It, there's just a lot of confusion going on about what exactly Jesus is saying and what he is talking about exactly. But in the section that we'll cover over the next couple months, chapters 14 through 17, some people at least start to get it. They start to understand what the kingdom is all about. Mainly, the disciples start to understand it, the 12 guys that regularly followed Jesus around day to day. And even with them, even with the disciples, it's very much a two steps forward, one step back type of understanding if you follow the story. 
It's almost like as Jesus talks and as Jesus does things, you can see the gears turning in the disciples' heads in real time and then also very occasionally getting stuck as they're trying to figure it out. In fact, I think we probably could have named this section of Matthew uh, disciples being geniuses and idiots all at the same time, but that was a little bit long and didn't fit on the bulletin, so we just went with understanding the kingdom. That's kind of the big idea behind this section of the book of Matthew. So it's a rocky journey of discovery, but sometimes in the kingdom of God, you have to celebrate the little wins, right? And so that's what we're going to be looking at over the next couple months. So all that said, let's dive in this morning to this section of Matthew and see what we can glean from it for our lives today. Pick it up with me, Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. So that means we're, we're zooming out, we're panning over and catching up on another part of the story for a second here. Herod heard the reports about Jesus, verse 2, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist, which it wasn't. He is risen from the dead, which he hadn't, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him, which also was not true. So Herod is very mistaken at this point in the story. None of that is actually accurate to what's going on, but Herod thinks that it is. He sees all the stuff that Jesus is up to, the miracles, the, the healings, everything that Jesus is doing, and he thinks that Jesus is a resurrected version, a reincarnated version of John the Baptist. But just as soon as Matthew tells us that about John the Baptist, We've got some catching up to do, because the last time we heard from John the Baptist in the book of Matthew was back in chapter 11, and he was not dead. He was alive, but he was in prison. So we need to find out what happened to John the Baptist. That's what the next part is about, verse 3. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her, verse 5. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. Now, here's where things kick up a notch in the story, intensity-wise. Verse 6, on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guest and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king, Herod, in other words, was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guest, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Yikes. <laughs> what a story, right? So let me briefly try to unpack everything that we just read, because this is still really just the setup to the story about Jesus today. So we try to do it quickly, but help you understand what's going on here. So Herod Antipas, the Herod in this story, Matthew 14, was basically a puppet king, puppet ruler set up by the Romans to rule over the Jewish people. He was the son of another king, also named Herod, who, if you know the Christmas story from the Bible, was the Herod that had all the baby boys in Bethlehem murdered because he saw them as a threat to his throne. So this Herod in Matthew 14 doesn't exactly come from great stock, right? Like, it's not a great family history, but this Herod that we read about in our passage was also shady in his own right. 
He had fallen in love with, seduced, and then married his brother's wife, a woman named Herodias, which is just frowned upon in general, but it also was a direct violation of Old Testament law. Which, just as a side note here, uh, I know not everybody is a biggest fan of everything in the Old Testament law, but I feel like don't sleep with your brother's wife is a pretty good rule. Like, I feel like we should hang on to that one, maybe. Um, Just my two cents on that. But that is what Herod had done. But because it was against Old Testament law, John the Baptist, who was an expert in Old Testament law, starts calling Herod out publicly for his sin. So Herod has John thrown in prison to shut him up, as corrupt kings and rulers sometimes do. And while John is in prison, Herod throws a birthday party for himself. But this birthday party is like nothing that you and I have ever been a part of, or at least I hope not. Because at this party, the the wine is likely flowing, guests there are having a good time, but then a dance gets performed for Herod and his guests. And from context, we pick up on the fact that this is not just any dance. It's not like a ballet performance for the king. This is an erotic dance for Herod and his guests specifically. And the performer of the dance is none other than Herodias' daughter. So track with me here. This is Herod's stepdaughter who is also his niece. Did you follow that genealogical math I just did? Weird situation, right? She's the one doing the dance, and to make things even worse, we think that she would have been around 12 to 14 years old at the time. This is whole new levels of depravity in this story. And the passage tells us that this dance, quote, pleased Herod so much, read into that whatever you want, we're already too many many levels into gross for me to unpack that for you, that he makes her a promise. He says that he will give her whatever she wants, anything at all. And he's probably thinking that she's going to ask for some money or some property or some assets or a party or something like that, which is all very feasible for him to give her. But instead, it says that she plots with her mom to ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And at this moment in the story, I, I would think that Herod is thinking, I may have had too much to drink. This just got way out of hand. I mean, this is like the record scratch moment in every movie that you ever see where the party just comes to a halt and he's like, I have to make a decision here. But he's already made the promise and he doesn't want to look weak in the eyes of his privileged guest and so he grants her request. John the Baptist is executed in prison. That's the story. That's actually just the backdrop for the story about Jesus, though. So follow with me. Then in verse 12, it says this. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this moment in the story from Jesus' perspective for just a second. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, likely one of his best friends from childhood. They quite literally knew each other from the womb, if you know that story. And not just that, but John was also Jesus's ministry partner. His ministry paved the way for Jesus's ministry. 
And on top of all of that, no doubt Jesus sees in John's death a foreshadowing of his own death. Jesus knows that he will also soon be executed by the powers that be. In fact, we find out in that story that Herod himself will have a hand in Jesus' execution. So receiving this news about John the Baptist was a heavy moment for Jesus, to say the very least. So when he hears it, Jesus does what most people would do in that type of situation when they receive heavy news. He takes some time to be alone for a bit, or at least he tries to. So take a look at what happens, verse 13 in the passage. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns, When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Okay, so picture this scene with me. Jesus, attempting to get a moment alone, gets on a boat and heads across the lake, the Sea of Galilee, to a remote place. But as he is sailing across the lake on the boat, the crowds are following him along the shore, such that when he gets to where he is going to attempt to be alone for a bit, the crowds are already there. So Jesus shows up on the shore, and there's all these people not just waiting on him, but actually needing things from him, needing healing. So I just want you to imagine for a moment how deflating this could have felt if you were in Jesus's position. Think of the last time you were exhausted, absolutely worn out. You just needed a moment to yourself. And then imagine that in that moment, not just needy people, but crowds of needy people follow you and need something from you at all times. If I'm Jesus, I'm thinking in this moment, really? I can't even get a moment alone right now? Like after I just received this news about my cousin, I can't even get a moment alone right now? after the news that I just received. And yet, when all of this happens to Jesus, his response is not frustration or anger or even so much as an eye roll. His response is compassion. When life cuts you and I, when life gets difficult for us, we often respond sinfully, right? Let's just be honest. Those are the moments when we are at our worst as human beings, is when life cuts us. When life cuts Jesus, though, he bleeds compassion for people. But even with that said, I want you to do me a favor at this point in the story as well. Let's not do the thing where we go, well, of course he showed them compassion. It's Jesus. Compassion is like his thing, right? Like that's who Jesus is. And you're right, that is his thing, But we cannot read this passage that simply for at least two reasons. One, because that ignores the entire context of the passage itself. It completely forgets this long, drawn-out story that Matthew just told us about John the Baptist and how Jesus has delivered that news and wants to be alone for a bit. Matthew seems to be telling us something in this story about the headspace that Jesus is in when all of this happens with the crowds. I think we'd be wise not to just ignore that context. But second, we can't read this story that simply Because that just isn't a theologically robust way to think about who Jesus was. Here's what I mean. 
our theology, historic Orthodox Christian theology, has always held that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Not God dressed up in a human suit, not God pretending to be human, but fully God and fully human, which means, among many other things, that Jesus experienced the full range of human emotion. He experienced the full range of human emotion. We read in the Bible that Jesus feels deeply. He grieves, he weeps, he feels joy, he feels compassion, he gets angry, he gets frustrated. He experiences all of that. Now, unlike us, he experiences all of that in a way that is unstained by sin, but he still experiences it. Does that make sense? So when it says that Jesus saw the crowds and had compassion on them in that moment, it doesn't mean that he used his divine robot powers to do that. It doesn't mean that he pressed his automatic compassion button and voila, he was compassionate towards the people. It means that he had to figure out by the power of the Holy Spirit how to minister to people in the midst of a heavy, emotionally overwhelming moment for him, much the way that you and I as followers of Jesus would. He had to rely on God's help to get to a place where he could care well for others even while he was hurting and grieving and overwhelmed himself. And that's precisely what he did. Out of a place of intentional, chosen compassion for these people, he begins healing all of those who were brought to him in that moment. And it's that setting that becomes the backdrop for one of Jesus' most well-known miracles. It's recorded in all four Gospels. It's almost the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels in our Bible, the so-called feeding of the 5,000. So let's take a look at that back in verse 15 of our passage. As the evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Now, several commentators on the book of Matthew actually observe that the disciples' tone in this moment towards Jesus seems a little off. So they don't use any of their usual respectful titles for Jesus, like Lord or Rabbi, which they usually did when they spoke to him. They're, they're kind of short with Jesus. They're, they're rude. They're unusually direct and bossy towards him in this moment. It comes across almost like they're rebuking Jesus for not thinking about how these people would need to eat at some point in all of this. They're saying, Jesus, what, what are you doing? You need to send these people away so that they can eat. Verse 16, Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. I love this. Jesus is going, tell you guys what, since I'm over here healing thousands of people, do you think y'all can maybe handle the catering for a second? <laughs> Jesus is not that snarky about it. That's the Kent Bateman translation of the Bible, but he is direct, right? He's direct with them in their response. He says plainly, no, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. The disciples respond, verse 17. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. So this is obviously nowhere near enough for the number of people present 
on the hillsides in that day. The disciples have five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, the fish could have been medium in size, but the loaves of bread were likely the size of small buns, so not a whole lot bigger than this, right? So they have enough to feed one person or maybe even a small family, but Jesus is asking for them to provide for thousands of people with just a few people's dinner rations. So they respond to Jesus incredulously, Jesus, we have five loaves and two fish. What are you talking about right now? This is not enough for all of these people. Famous last words, look at verse 18. Bring them here to me, Jesus said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave them to the disciples The disciples gave them to the people. They all ate, were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children, so likely upwards of 10,000 people in total. Jesus miraculously provides food for this massive crowd such that it says every person was satisfied, every person was full, they had what they needed, and then some. And then still, at the end of all of that, there were 12 baskets full of food left over at the end, i.e. just enough for the disciples themselves to eat. There were 12 disciples, which is no small thing, considering they were probably a little bit anxious about what they were going to eat themselves after all of this, right? Like they're probably thinking, hey, we haven't thought about us either at this point. I'm just, I get hungry for dinner too. Just maybe consider that in this whole miracle. So Jesus offers compassion and provision even out of a place of heaviness and exhaustion and grief on his part. So with the story unpacked a little, Let's take a step back and ask ourselves what this story from Matthew might have to say to us, you and I, followers of Jesus, living in the 21st century in Knoxville, Tennessee, other than it just being an amazing story worth marveling at, which it is, what might it mean for you and for me when we wake up tomorrow morning? I'll give you three takeaways that stuck out to me from the passage. First, first thing that stuck out to me was that Jesus knows Jesus knows. Jesus knows how it feels to serve and to care for others out of a place of grief, sorrow, and exhaustion. These crowds find Jesus, and really more like they track him down, right as he is still reeling from the news about his friend and cousin, John the Baptist. In fact, reeling to the point that he was attempting to get a moment alone in that moment, which means Jesus is given this opportunity to serve and to help others out of a very difficult physical and emotional state himself. And I think that's important for us to notice because anyone who has followed Jesus for very long at all has likely been in a place like this, especially if you believe, like the scriptures teach, that part of following Jesus is regularly pouring yourself out to serve and to care for others in your midst. And I know many of you in this room right now are doing precisely that. You're pouring yourself out. You're caring for a friend who's going through something. Maybe you're caring for a family member, a child or a parent or a relative. 
maybe one who doesn't know Jesus, and you're doing your best to show them who Jesus is by how you interact with them and how you speak to them. Maybe you're a life group leader and you're regularly thinking through how to love and care for the people in your group. Or maybe you're just in a group and you're thinking through how to care for people in that group. I know many of you are doing precisely this sort of thing right now, day in and day out. And if that type of thing is a regular enough part of your life, sooner or later you are going to have to do that out of a very difficult place, out of a place of exhaustion, a place of burnout, a place of I just don't want to be around people right now, those moments will absolutely happen as you follow Jesus. You'll need to care for others while you are still reeling from devastating news of your own. You'll have to care for others while you are still grieving something, while you are exhausted, or maybe just in the seasons where life has worn you down over time. And there's all types of advice that we could give you for those moments, for those seasons, when you have to do that, when you have to serve out of a difficult place. But if I could just encourage you with one thing in those moments above all else, here's what it would be. Take those moments directly to Jesus. He knows how that feels. He has been in that place. He's been in a place like that, and he knows it firsthand. And therefore, he is the best and the safest person in the world to talk to about those moments, when you find yourself in those moments. About two years into starting City Church, I got the phone call that no pastor ever wants to get. It was the middle of the night. One of our members had just been rushed to the hospital after collapsing on his driveway when having trouble breathing. Once they got him there, there was really nothing they could do. He passed away at just 31 years old, leaving behind his wife and one-month-old baby boy. His name was Sean. I know some of you guys knew Sean. Sean was deeply integrated into the life of our church. He was one of 25 people that moved with us from South Carolina to help start City Church. We had even talked some about his desire to maybe be a pastor of our church family one day. So when he suddenly passed away, there were two things that I had to do personally. One, I had to grieve. I'd known Sean for a long time. We were friends. We went way back over the years. So on one level, I needed to grieve. I needed to process his death. But also, as a pastor, I needed to help 30-plus people in our church family at that time also grieve and process after Sean's death. I needed to help figure out a way to meet the practical needs of his wife and one-month-old baby. We needed to figure out funeral arrangements and details and financial provisions and all of that. I needed to care for others out of a really difficult place myself. The months following Sean's death were some of the most overwhelming and exhausting months of my entire life, without a doubt. But at the same time, there was a level of dependence on the Spirit of God in those months that I don't know that I had ever experienced before or have ever experienced since. I remember thinking of passages much like the one that we're reading today and just asking Jesus out of a personal place of exhaustion, Jesus, how did you do this? 
How did you care for other people when you had just received this type of news? How did you serve other people and meet other people's needs in a moment when you feel like you're barely making it? In that season of my life, I think I was more aware of my need for the Spirit's help than any other time in my life. And out of that place, over time, came a deep intimacy with God as well. There there was a keen awareness that that Jesus knew some version of what I was feeling in those moments, that he had been where I was, and that he was incredibly near to me in the midst of it all. There was this understanding in me that Jesus had been where I had been. There was this understanding in me that he had felt some of what I felt, and because of that, he was a trustworthy person to lean on and talk to and process with in those moments. And I wonder if that's not some of what the Spirit invites us into in these seasons. In these moments when we feel like we don't have anything to give and yet still need to give, I wonder if he's not inviting us into a type of desperation and intimacy with him that we might not know any other way. Hebrews 4 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted. That word can also be translated tried, tested, put through the fire. We have one who has been tried in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus knows exhaustion, he knows heaviness, he knows hurt, he knows grief, he knows sorrow, and because of that, his throne is the best place in the world to bring your exhaustion, your grief, your sorrow directly to. Do you hear that? Do you believe that? Second thing that stands out to me from this passage that Jesus challenges. Jesus challenges. Jesus also offers a challenge in this passage directly to the disciples. If you pay careful attention as you read through this story, there is a contrast that I think Matthew wants us to see in the story. The contrast is between the posture of Jesus toward the crowd and the posture of the disciples towards the crowd. Jesus sees the crowd with compassion, while the disciples see the crowds as a burden. So much of a burden, in fact, that the disciples approach Jesus and call his attention to the burden on his hands. Jesus, all these people need to eat. You need to send them away so that they can eat. Jesus responds to them with a challenge. They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Jesus is challenging the disciples to see the crowds much the same way as he sees them, as people in need of compassion and not simply people who are a burden. And I wonder if that challenge from Jesus needs to make its way directly to some of us sitting here today. Because if I had to guess, there are likely people in each of our lives that we are inclined to view as burdens. Like, hopefully we can be honest about that. 
Maybe don't like nudge them if they're sitting beside you right now, but like they, we all have those people in our life, right? There are people that we are inclined to see as burdens and not be able to see with compassion. There are people, maybe even groups of people that just bother us to no end, who when we see them make us feel immediately more tired and ornery than we were before we saw them, people that wear us out and exhaust us in nearly every way. And listen, I wanna say to that, some of that is understandable. Some people's personalities are such that they just often annoy us, and some of our personalities annoy other people, right? So I'm not trying to say that we can't ever be frustrated when people are frustrating. So hear me on that. But I will say this, it is very difficult to regularly treat someone with compassion if you view them primarily as a burden to your life. It is very difficult to see your coworkers as people to love and serve and care for while also seeing them as horrible people who mainly only make your life harder. It is very difficult to see your life group as a group of people that God gave you to care for in tangible ways and also see them primarily as annoyances to your life. Um, parents of young children in the room, it is very difficult to regularly treat your kids with compassion and understanding while viewing them mostly as needy, whiny, bothersome, tiny humans in your life. With them, it's a little bit easier to do both because they're cute sometimes, but it's still difficult to maintain both of those beliefs at the same time. And I could go on with examples, right? But I, I think you get the point. It is extremely difficult to see people as logistical burdens in your life and also be compassionately inclined towards them. So I wonder if part of what Jesus wants to accomplish, like he did with the disciples, is to challenge us, you and I, to see people the way that he sees them, to care for people the way that he cares for people to see people through the lenses that he sees them through. I think that's, what part, that's part of what Jesus is challenging us with as well. But I think in order to do that, in order to see people the way that Jesus sees them, we're going to need to know one last thing from this passage. And this one I would argue is the most important one. The last thing is that Jesus provides. Jesus provides. Wherever we're at on the other stuff, whether we're trying to love and care for people in a difficult season or trying to see people with compassion rather than as burdens to us, I think we all need to understand in those moments that Jesus provides. So we obviously can gather this from how Jesus provides food for people in the story, for thousands of people on the hillside. But I'll also tell you there's actually more to this story than first meets the eye. So the way that Matthew tells this story in Matthew 14, it's clear that he wants us to see this story as a retelling of another story from the Old Testament. It's the story of God providing manna in the wilderness. So in Exodus chapter 16, if you want to go and read it on your own time, God has just led his people out of slavery in Egypt. And before they go very far at all into the wilderness, they start grumbling constantly about not having enough food. 
So God, in response to that, starts providing manna, bread, for them. Literally, he rains down bread every day from the sky so that they have enough food to eat each and every day in the wilderness. It was this sign of God's provision and trustworthiness towards them in that moment of their life together. So when Jesus, in this story looks up to heaven and breaks the bread and gives it to the disciples. And maybe even more pointedly, when the disciples go up to Jesus and grumble about there not being enough food, Matthew wants us to see an allusion to this story from the Old Testament. And he wants us to understand that Jesus, in a way, is the bread of life. He is the provider. But I also want you to see that this story doesn't just point backwards in the scriptures, it also points forward. When Jesus thanks God and breaks the bread and hands the bread to the disciples, it reads almost identically to the story of the so-called Last Supper, Jesus' final meal with his disciples before his crucifixion. Take a look with me on the screen at Matthew 26, verse 26, that records that moment like this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Almost the exact same language as what we read in Matthew 14. But this time, Jesus adds this line on the end of it. He says, take and eat this bread, this is my body. The bread that Jesus broke at that later meal was a symbol of his own body that within 24 hours would itself be broken apart on the cross. Jesus is saying, not only do I provide, I am the provision. Jesus is the provision for each and every one of his disciples, for each and every one of us who would believe in him through his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus would not just provide, he would become the provision that we all need. I think the Apostle Paul makes this connection even clearer in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, when he says this, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him, graciously give us all things. If ever we find ourselves struggling to trust in God's provision for us, Paul says the best place in the world for us to look is to the cross. If there, God did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us, can't he also be trusted to provide us with what we need today? At the cross, we see that God is undeniably committed to providing for us. He is unbelievably devoted to making sure that we have what we need always. Now, let's make sure we're clear on what is meant by that. That's not the same thing as saying that God will always give us what we want or that God will always give us what we would prefer or even the same as him giving us what we think we need but he will always give us what we need. And we can know that because of Jesus. Jesus provides and he is the provision. But I want you to notice as well that in our story from Matthew 14, Jesus' provision isn't something that he wants his disciples to believe just in theory. He doesn't want them to believe that he is their theoretical provision. He wants them to actually bank on it. 
He asked them to bring the only food that they have or have access to and offer it up completely to the crowds. Abandon it completely, in other words. He asked them to do what they would do if they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus could and would provide. To do something that only makes sense if Jesus is who he says he is. If he can do what he says he can do. He wants them to know firsthand what him being enough for them feels like. And then ironically, after they've abandoned it all, there are precisely 12 baskets of food left over for them. Just the right amount for the 12 of the disciples. You see, math in the kingdom of God just works differently. The world's math says take whatever you can get for yourself at all times, and if you have some left over, maybe consider sharing that with others because it's kind of a cool thing to be generous. Math in the kingdom of God says give up everything you have for God and for the kingdom and for others, and when you do, there will always be enough for what you need left over. You see, it's one thing to believe that God is enough for you in theory. It's one thing to read a statement like that in the Bible or sing songs about it or say it to other people or like take an Instagram photo of you reading it in the Bible and posting it for other people to see. It's one thing for you to believe that God is enough for you in theory. It's another thing to know that he is enough in such a way that you're willing to live as if he is all you've got and he is all you need. So I just want to ask all of us a question, and we, we don't have time to unpack it, so I've just got to trust that the Spirit of God can help you answer it honestly for yourself. The question I have is, does your life reflect that Jesus is your provision? that Jesus is enough for you, that Jesus is all that you need. In just a moment, we're going to take communion. And like we say every single week, that bread and that juice represents Jesus' body and his blood. And I don't think it's any coincidence at all that Jesus wanted us to remember him and his death via a meal. When we take communion, when we literally ingest it into our bodies, we are physically acting out the reality that Jesus is our provision, that he is our sustenance, that he is what we need. When we take the bread and the cup, we are saying to ourselves, Jesus, you sustain me like bread. You are the manna that came down from heaven, and you are enough for me in my life. God is too good to let us believe in his provision theoretically. He wants us to know it and see it and feel it and experience it. And when we do, we will find that he is always enough for what we need. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you sent him as our provision, as our sustenance, as our hope, as our rescue, as our freedom. 
God, I know we um, have walked in here from all different places, all different experiences, all different understandings, and even in all different seasons right now. God, maybe some of us are in a season where um, we are seeing and experiencing and savoring the fact that you are all that we need. And maybe we, we feel that in the deepest parts of us right now. We understand that you're enough and we've seen you be enough for us. And so God, I pray that out of that place, if that's the season that we're in, if that's what we're experiencing at this moment, that we would respond with worship. We would respond with a sense of gratitude and thanksgiving for all that you are and all that you've done and all that you will do and all the ways that you've provided. We gotta also know that, that probably a lot of us are, are not in that season. We're not in a place where we have experienced firsthand in the recent past that you are enough. We don't feel like that's true. Maybe we understand it intellectually. We believe it in our heads, but we do not experience it as truth in our hearts. And so God, um, I want to pray that if, if that's where we're at, that we would be willing to approach your throne of grace so that we might find mercy and help in our time of need. God, I want to pray that we would speak that truth to our hearts in such a way that it starts to take root, even if it's slow, even if it takes a while, even if like the disciples, it's two step forward and one step back, whatever it looks like, God, I pray that we'd be willing to proclaim that truth to our own hearts. And I pray that you'd put people in our lives that can proclaim that to us and remind us of that. God, I pray that we wouldn't run away from the truth of the scriptures where we can be reminded of that on a day-by-day, hour-by-hour basis. And God, lastly, uh, maybe some of us are in a place where we... We say we believe that you're enough, and yet we're constantly running after other things that we think will satisfy, that we think will be enough, that we think will sort of make up for the gaps where you haven't come through in the ways that we thought you would come through. And so God, would you help those of us that are in that place, God, would you help align our lives with the truths that we confess? Would you help our confessional beliefs to be the same as our functional beliefs? And would you help bring us into your kingdom and experience what it really means to see you as enough for us? And God, our prayer is that through all of this, through, through every process like this one, that, that God we would respond by worshiping you for who you are, who you've always been, who you sent Jesus to be for us. And God, I pray that we would be so quick to run to you with whatever we've got in a difficult season, with frustration, with annoyances, whatever it is. 
that we would see you as the safest person in the world to come to. God, thank you that you are a high priest that understands what life in a broken world feels like. Thank you that you did not remain calm and cool and disconnected from all of that, but you entered into it in the name of Jesus. God, we thank you that we can trust you, that you're trustworthy and that you're our provision. Would you help us to believe that as a functional level, day by day, hour by hour? Would you help us to live into and out of that reality? We ask this in your name.